We've been moving through the book of Galatians, and we've studied the message of Christ and his church. And then we moved on to cover the fact that there's only one gospel. There's one gospel message that comes from Christ and his church. And then that led us to contemplate what it means to be a part, set apart for the gospel. And then we moved on to talk about defending the gospel, not that the gospel needs our defense or our help, but when we say defend the gospel, we really mean to give an explanation for why it is we believe in the gospel, why we believe the things that we do. And hopefully, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you know how to do these things. You know how to give an explanation. We talked about in the last episode, justification by faith, and I defined what justification is. I defined what faith is. And I would just encourage any of my listeners, go ahead and read the whole book of Galatians. It shouldn't take you that long. If you're a slow reader like I am, you could probably get it done in 30 minutes or less. And I hope that anyone who is listening to this can, at this time, accurately define what the gospel really is and define those terms that we use as Christians, grace, justification, faith, assurance, conviction, and even the word salvation. Do you know what those words mean? So today, in this episode, we're going to continue on in our exploration of the book of Galatians, beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15, and we're going to take verses 15 through 21. And just as a reminder, it's a continuation of the confrontation from Paul to Peter, and it is over the issue of works, specifically works-based salvation. And so what has happened at this point is uh, Paul has confronted Peter on uh, the issue of uh, basically trying to keep dietary restrictions of the old covenant. And it's not so much that he's doing that, but he's also doing it at the expense of fellowship with the Gentiles. And he's giving the implication here that the apostles' doctrine, which was clearly established in Jerusalem, is not correct that the um, not only the apostles doctrine, but the church in Jerusalem is wrong. And by default, that also carries over to the apostle Paul. And it's also an attack on his apostleship. And so Peter is basically taking the side of the Judaizers. And this even goes in direct uh, conflict to his own revelation that Peter had from the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 10, where God tells him there's no longer any such thing as an unclean food, that the Holy Spirit has now come and visited the Gentiles just as he visited the Jews. And you may even remember the um, household of Cornelius uh, comes to Christ. And Peter is a witness to this. He sees the Holy Spirit has come to the Gentiles and um, the Lord shows him you can even eat with the Gentiles. With all that said, let's hear 
the word of God. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the law, I'm sorry, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The first point I want us to take a look at here comes from verses 15 and 16. There is nothing human beings can do to save themselves. So here we have Paul's reaction to uh, Peter basically going and having um, a meal with the Judaizers, the false teachers, and he's doing this at the expense of his relationship with the Gentiles. Verses 15 and 16 actually belong together. And I would remind you that chapter and verse numbers have been inserted into your Bible by editors so that you and I can find our place when we make references in the Bible. So I can give you book, chapter, and verse number, and you can see where I'm reading from and vice versa. If you were leading a uh, Bible study, you could make that known to me as well. So it's not part of the original manuscripts. In other words, when this letter was written... There weren't chapter and verse numbers in it. And I bring that up just simply to say that these two verses, they can seem like a mouthful at first glance, but they do belong together. And I'm going to attempt to paraphrase these verses so that you can understand what is being said. Now, remember, this is a continuation from the previous episode when we talked about Paul confronting Peter face to face. So Paul has just asked Peter the question, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as the Jews? So continuing on here in verses 15 and 16, and this is my paraphrase, Paul is saying, Peter, you and I were born Jews. And that's what it means when it says by nature, we are by nature. He's saying we were born this way. He's saying, you and I, Peter, we're not proselytes. We're not God-fearing Gentiles. We are by blood Jews. So when it says the next phrase, center of the Gentiles, I want you to remember what we talked about in the previous episode. In the Jewish language, a sinner is a Gentile. A Gentile is a sinner. Gentiles were unclean. They never had the law of God. So in the oldest manuscripts, which are carried for, forward in the uh, New American Standard and the English Standard Version, there's a word that we translate as yet, but, 
or nevertheless, and that actually belongs at the beginning of verse 16. So when we put it all together, we get something like this. You and I, Peter, we're not born. We are born. Let me start that over. <laughs> you and I, Peter, we are born Jews. We did not convert to Judaism like some people have done. We were born into it being blood descendants of Abraham. We are not like the sinful, unclean Gentiles. Yet knowing that, Peter, you and I both, as well as the Gentiles in our church, we have cast away our trust in the law and we have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, justification is what's being talked about here. It is the doctrine that the church will either stand or fall, all on this doctrine. And in effect, what is being said here by Paul to Peter is justification is what this is all about, Peter. It comes down to trusting in Christ alone. And we stated uh, in the previous episode, I've talked about the five solas. It is uh, very much a strong part of this podcast that I do, the five solas. I quoted uh, Martin Luther last week, and I'd like to make another reference to Martin Luther. He called the justifying righteousness of Christ a foreign righteousness. In other words, it is not your own righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes from outside of us. It is given to us by God himself. And this righteousness, it is an alien thing to us. Our flesh kicks against the righteousness of Christ. It's something which you and I in ourself, we do not possess. You cannot, and I cannot, gain it. You cannot merit it. You will never work for it. And this is interesting because in context of church history, Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church stated at the sixth session of the Council of Trent that until or unless with the help of grace, with the help of Jesus, with the help of your faith, you finally come to a place in your life where you are truly righteous, that righteousness inheres within you, you will not be justified. In other words, God will never declare you just. He will never declare you righteous unless you really and truly are. And that word I used, inheres, it's where we get the word inherently. In other words, what the Roman Catholic Church was stating was it has to come from within you, that there's a purifying work and eventually you get to the place where you are righteous. And in the 1990s, the Roman Catholic Church stood by this pronouncement from the uh, Council of Trent, and, they, and it's in their modern catechism today. In other words, Rome believes that what I am saying here in this podcast is a lie. I am preaching justification by faith in Christ alone. And friends, all roads do not lead to God. All roads certainly do not lead to Rome. This is a big deal. It's not a little thing. And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, 
you know that one of the things that is a concern to me is when people say things like, we're all basically same, the same, or this person's a Roman Catholic, I'm not, but it's all basically the same. They're still a believer. Well, friends, they might be a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm simply telling you that if they are relying on anything else except the grace of Christ, if they are doing any other kind of work, thinking that it's going to improve their situation and help out their salvation, if they believe that what uh, they say in their own catechism, that righteousness has to become something that is inherent within you, I'm just simply telling you they're as guilty as Peter is here for attempting to keep the dietary restrictions. We are righteous because God has declared it for those who are his. That's what it means to say you're justified. God has declared that you are righteous if you belong to him. I am and you are at the same time both righteous and a sinner. And this is where we get the phrase, a sinner saved by grace. And just so you understand, I didn't come up with this, actually, uh, again, I'm going back all the way to Martin Luther. He was saying, at the same time we are righteous, we are sinners. We are sinners. We are sinners who are saved by grace. So what are we saying when we say that? We're saying that if we have to wait until righteousness becomes something that is inherent within us, if I have to wait until I am sinless, if I've got to go to purgatory, which doesn't exist, but if it did, if I've got to go to that place to remove the blemish of sin that is on my soul, it will never happen. Do you understand that? Because if you fail to see this, you don't realize the depravity of your own sin. You're not seeing your situation for what it truly is. I am righteous because God has granted it to me. Totally undeserving as I am, he has granted me the righteousness of Christ, period. There is only one who's good enough to achieve justification. His name is Jesus Christ, and this is why you need him. Your works are not enough. You can work as hard as you are possibly able to work, and if you present nothing but works before God, you will perish forever. You cannot be saved by having Christ plus your works. If you are resting upon good deeds to save you, you have no Savior left. Brings me to point number two, verses 17 through 19. Justification means believers are reckoned as righteous through the death of Jesus Christ. So Paul makes a statement here as we consider verses 17 through 19. We had Paul's reaction. Now we have Paul's statement. Keep in mind that Paul is getting at this inseparable relationship between Christ and faith in him. You can distinguish between the two, but the gospel message will have both. The gospel message will have both Christ and faith. Christ is the truth. He is the very content of the gospel, and faith is that means by which we receive Christ. 
Well, what do you mean when you say means? On the one hand, you're saying no work, but on the other hand, you're saying faith is the means. Well, imagine if you can, a sculptor standing in front of a marble slab. Now, all analogies are going to uh, fall short. Um, they're an analogy. It's something to try to help you understand. So this is probably not going to be perfect, but it might help you out a little bit in understanding what we mean when we say faith is that means by which we receive Christ. So imagine this sculptor standing in front of a marble slab and he can stand there and he can imagine what his finished product is going to be. He can think about it all he wants to, but it will not come to pass until he picks up the instruments and begins to chisel away at the stone to create whatever sculpture he's going to make. There is an instrument that God gives to his own people. It is that instrument of faith. And you see what I'm talking about here, and the reason I'm using the word instrument is because I'm talking about something called the instrumental cause. And the Roman Catholic Church has proclaimed that the instrumental cause of one's salvation is a sacramental system. So you've got to be baptized. You have to perform penance. You have to do all these things. But it was the Protestant reformers who stood there against that teaching and proclaimed, no, the sole instrumental cause of our salvation is faith in Christ. So faith alone is not merely central to the gospel. It is essential to the gospel. So again, going back to that sculptor, the idea here is that the instrument that God has given to his own people is that instrument of faith. Paul's first point is that you have that if you have to, and again, remember he's talking to Peter here. Peter, if you have to keep the ceremonial law of Moses in order to be saved, then even before the false teachers showed up, the entire church here at Antioch, we're a bunch of unsaved sinners. Well, why why does that point come out? Well, it's what is happening is is that by going back to the law of Moses, following the dietary restrictions, he's basically saying that all of those Gentiles eating Gentile food, eating unclean food, they're all sinners. But both Peter and Paul believed in justification through faith in Christ. In fact, it was their common belief that Christ had fulfilled the law for them precisely because no human being can do it. So remember that Jewish mindset that I've talked about. Gentiles were sinners and without the law of God. Paul was saying that before the Judaizers had arrived, that both of them, both Peter and Paul, were in communion with the Gentiles. And according to their former way of thinking, as Jews before Christ, they would think that the Gentiles were sinners. And Paul's second point is that if we have become sinners because we exercise the freedom in Christ to go eat with the Gentiles, 
then that makes Christ a minister of sin. So for Peter to go back to some dietary law in the presence of the Judaizers is like admitting that he now looks at the Gentiles as sinners without the law of God. And that is the way they used to look at them, like I said, before Christ. So Peter has placed himself, according to his old way of thinking, before Christ came into his life, he has placed himself in the same category as those who are sinful Gentiles. In other words, Peter, you were either claiming to be a Christian as you openly sinned by eating with Gentiles while claiming that Jesus approved of your sin, or you believe that you were not a Christian before, and now you are because you've returned to dietary law. And your position is inconsistent, Peter. This is what Paul is saying. And the conclusion is, in either case, is that Jesus must have failed to justify us by faith. And so Paul asks the question, and Paul's really good about asking questions. He asks the question, and I'd like to think it's kind of sarcastic. He says, Peter, is Christ therefore a minister of sin. Now, hopefully, Christian, your mind revolts at that idea. The sin is not with Christ, and that is exactly the point. The sin is with Peter because of his actions, and by his actions, he is inferring that Christ was compelling them to sin by eating unclean food with unclean people. I hope you can see this. And Paul answers his own question with the phrase, certainly not, or may it never be. And I have to admit that even though it's a hypothetical question, it is in our Bible, and Paul is setting this whole thing up here, it's hard for me to even say it, because of all the things Jesus is, there is one thing that he is not, friends, he is not a minister of sin. But there's at least two very important subpoints that I want you to get out of this, out of this whole idea, this whole exchange here. Number one, there is a fear among some people that teaching that faith in Christ alone leads to what you might call loose living. In fact, it's where we get the term, if you've ever heard these terms, easy believism. It's an offshoot of this kind of thinking. Uh, there's an idea among some people that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian or cheap grace. Maybe you've heard those terms. It's because people misunderstand what we mean by justification by faith. And they live as ungodly as they want to live by claiming that it's all right because in the end, they quote unquote, believe and Jesus. Friends, we're to be on guard against such thinking. And this is not at all what we mean when we say justification through faith in Christ alone. In fact, this was one of the charges that Rome brought against the Protestant reformers. You're going to have all these Christians living loose. Well, isn't it interesting that probably those who engage in the loose living, we'll say, is not 
on the Protestant side as much as it is on Rome's side. Because if I can earn my salvation through penance or baptism, or if there's something that's going to happen in the afterlife and all my sin is going to be burned away in purgatory until I become inherently righteous and then I get to go to heaven, well then why not go crazy in this lifetime, do whatever I want. I'm good to go. I was baptized Roman Catholic, right? So I've checked that box and I'll just have my sin purged from me in purgatory. And when that's over, I'll, I'll make it in to heaven. Friends, that's just not what the scripture teaches. And this is not what we mean when we say justification by faith. The full doctrine, and this is the second little sub-point here, the full doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone is that we are saved by faith unto good works. And you've heard me say this, I know, on previous episodes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A study of this passage will show you that just as much as grace is the gift of God, so too is saving faith. And we see here that we have been saved for good works. And further, that God has prepared those works beforehand. All we have to do, Christian, is go do what he has prepared beforehand for us to go do. And James addresses this as well. James 2, 17. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, don't get this twisted. He's not saying that you have to work. For salvation. What he is saying is that as Christians, we have a living faith. It's a faith that goes with us wherever we go. It's not dead. It produces good fruit. If you are a Christian, your faith in Christ will not allow you to go after those things that we might term as loose living or sinful actions or other things like that. Now, you may fall into sin as a Christian. You may do something that you shouldn't have done. But here's the difference. When you've been born again, when you've been regenerated by the very living Holy Spirit of the one true and living God, you can't deal with your sin. You are grieved that you did this or you did that. You are aware that you have sinned. And friends, that comes from a faith that is alive. The one who can continue in sin and they think it's okay because they quote unquote believe in Jesus, that is not a living faith, friends. A living faith will change your life. It will change your behavior. It'll change your thoughts, the things that you say, the things that you do. And your work will reflect a relationship with Jesus not the other way around. I, you are not working 
to earn favor with God. I would remind you that even the demons believe, quote unquote, believe in Jesus. They know for a fact they have seen him. They know he is real and they know that he is the savior. So they believe, but the Bible says they believe and they tremble. So there's something a little more to it than just merely admitting the academic facts, so to speak. So moving on, these Judaizers insisted that the only way to be saved or to be justified is through the instrumental cause. Now remember that term that we just mentioned, the instrumental cause of faith plus the instrumental cause of works. In other words, they were attempting to add to the faith given by God to his people. It's the same issue uh, going on today that we face today. It was the same thing in the 16th century Reformation, and it's the same thing that was going on back then with the Judaizers. Paul is making a distinction between salvation because of works versus a, versus a salvation which comes first and works that follow because of a changed life. So as we move on to verse 18, I want you to consider that the Judaizers expected to be saved by Christ and by obedience to the law. There are cult groups today that will say things like, Jesus has done all he can do, now you have to do all you can do. There are those who will say you must meet on the true Sabbath. All you folks who are meeting on Sunday morning, you're meeting on the wrong Sabbath. That's not the Sabbath. And on and on it goes. There are those who want to add legalism to grace. And Paul's response here is basically saying the same law that identifies sin is the same law that awakens the flesh. And that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about law versus grace. It is Paul's faith in Christ which has overthrown the legalism and attempts on our part to be subjugated to the law. If you attempt to subjugate yourself to the law, all that is really going to happen is that you're going to prove that you're a transgressor of the very law that you're trying to keep. And when Paul says, for if I build again, here in verse 18, he is intending for Peter to put himself in the sentence. He's saying, Peter, you've proved yourself to be a sinner and a transgressor of the law by your assertion that it can be followed because we know it cannot be followed. You, by your own actions, have shown that you cannot be justified by the law. You see, Peter is in a real mess here philosophically. He's in a mess spiritually, logically, because he has barred himself from justification by Christ since the implication is, as it's alluded to earlier in this passage, that Christ is a minister of sin. So he is really messed up. He's not justified by Christ, and yet he broke the law. What a mess. And that is what Paul is pushing here. 
verse 19. It's very interesting to look at verse 19 when you consider everything that we've covered up to this point, getting to verse 19. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself as you truly are if you are honest with yourself. And that's what the law of God is like. If you're not too proud to see it, you know, the law is that mirror that shows me the ugliness of my sin. Paul tells us that the law is like a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. The law will drive me to my Savior because he's the only one who can save me. In this verse, verse 19, Paul is saying that when he discovered the gospel, the law died. Now, I didn't die. You didn't die. Uh, Paul did not die. But the law did in terms of its condemnation over me. And this is why Paul can say with confidence in Romans 8.33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And it's so very important that you get this. Paul is acknowledging when I died to the law in order that I might live to God, I did not reject the law so that I could live lawlessly. I learned that through the law, I can never be justified. The only way I can be free to live for God is if I let the law die in terms of its hold over me. So for any who want to add to the gospel by attempting to keep the real Sabbath or going back to some dietary law or keeping a track of how many hours that they work, like the Jehovah Witnesses do, going door to door, tracking their hours, any other kind of work. Roman Catholics who think that baptism is going to do it, and they've said penance and all of this, any work, these are the ones who are trying to raise the law from the dead, and there is no salvation there. They want to add something to salvation. Works-based salvation makes Christ a minister of sin. And dear friends, as I've already said in this episode, he is not. Last point here, point number three. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Verses 20 through 21 Paul makes a stand. We've had Paul's reaction, Paul's statement. Now we're seeing that Paul makes a stand. John MacArthur says, legalism's most destructive effect is that it cancels the effect of the cross. What does he mean by that? Well, he simply means that if you try to keep the law, you become legalistic and you simply cannot have both the law and the cross of Christ. And I join with Paul and I make my stand at the cross of Christ. When I say in agreement with Paul that it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me, I'm saying that the old self, the old me is dead. I have been crucified with Christ. 
Now, obviously, I haven't physically been crucified, right? This is a spiritual thing that my spirit man is dead with Christ. And at this point, to go back under the law cancels my union with him. Because when I died to those things, just as Christ rose from the dead, I now live. The spirit man has come alive, being born again. You cannot have both. You either have law or you have grace. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is a life, friends, that you receive by faith in Christ. There's a Greek verb here behind the English word uh, that um, we use for live. When we say the life that I now live in Christ, I live by faith. It's in perfect tense. So what does that mean? It means that there has been a past action which has continuing results in the present and into the future. What it means to you and me as a believer is that in Christ, we spiritually participated with him in the crucifixion and his victory over death. And the true Christian life is not so much a believer's living for Christ as it is Christ living through the believer. In other words, that completed action in the past, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, that has a continuing result in my life, and it continues on into the future. I hope you can see this. Jesus living in me. Now I understand. We say things like, I'm living for Jesus, and I know what you mean. But think of it. Christ living in you is what produces the good fruit, the good works. Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So the fullness of God now dwells in every believer. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, it says that he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. So I don't have this life because of anything that I have done. It is a divine life. It is a privilege beyond words to have the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside of me. It was done not because God saw how amazing I am and he just has to have me on his team. No, it was done because he loved me and he gave himself for me. He purchased me. This is why we say things like personal savior. It is indeed very personal. God in human form gave himself for all those who would call upon his name and receive his life by faith. And the motivation for everything we do is then gratitude. The divine choice by God is the source of our devotion, obedience, work. We give not to earn favor with God, but because he gave us a giving heart. We obey him not because we've got the power to do so, because we don't, but we obey because he has given us the will to do so. 
I'm reformed. I believe a very Calvinistic approach to salvation. That is, I believe that God chose before the foundations of the world who he was going to save. And so a lot of a lot of times one of the objections that people bring up is they'll say, well, you don't believe in free will. You think we're all just robots. And that is not what we believe as reformed believers. I want you to hear what I said. I said, we obey him because he gave us the will to do so. Friends, when you were a sinner, you had free will. You could sin all you wanted to. You could choose as many different ways to sin and all of its various different varieties. Your heart was evil. Your will was bound by evil. That is what we believe. It is God who liberates your will And for the first time ever in your life, your eyes are opened, you see the difference, and you now will to do good because he made that in you. So we work not so that God and others might be impressed with us, but because we're so thankful for what he did first. He's the one who gave us the attitude of gratitude. He is the one who changed my will, and now I can do good things for the right reasons. We serve a sovereign and gracious Lord, and the New Testament teaches us over and over and over about the love of our great God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But it goes on. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I don't have time to unpack this in this particular episode, but again, this is one of these passages passages of Scripture that is misunderstood by those who are Armenian in their view of salvation, actually thinking that they had something to do with it, that they had free will, that they had free choice. They'll come here and they'll point to this and they'll see, they'll say, See, look, God loved the whole world, and it even says whoever believes in him will not perish. And we would say to that, you're absolutely right. You need to define your terms. First of all, you need to look at how John uses the word world. And in the very next verse, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So does that mean that the whole entire world got saved? past, present, and future? No, it doesn't. So there must be a different kind of deeper definition to the word world, right? I would put out there for your consideration, if you're contemplating these things, like um, God's divine election and his choice over who he saves and who he doesn't save, I would ask you to just think about what is meant by this word world. 
it means that there is only one Savior in the whole world. It means that there is only one God. And does he love the world? Absolutely he does. I would suggest that the whole reason he hasn't blown up the entire planet is because of, is because of his great love, mercy, and grace. And when we talk about whoever believes, friends, that's not what the debate is over. The debate is, how does a dead man come to life? How did Lazarus come out of the grave? Did Lazarus have anything at all to do with him being raised from the dead? No. Did you choose your parents? No. Did you choose the day you would be born? No. Why do you think it is that Jesus, in this very same passage here in John chapter 3, why do you think it is that Jesus uses the word born again? Because you don't have anything to do with it, friends. You don't have anything to do with it. And if you think you do, once again, you don't understand the depravity of your sin. And there's so much more I could say. Hopefully, if you're wrestling with those questions in your mind, um, uh, you know, hopefully I gave you something to think about there. Remember verse 18, John 3, 18, where he says, he who believes in him is not condemned. So if you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. But he who does not believe, now watch this, is condemned when? Already. Already condemned. What condition are we born in, friends? We are born into sin. We are born not believing. We are born selfish, self-centered sinners. We are born in the first Adam, dead in our trespasses and sin. Moving on, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, coming back to that theme of love. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Earlier, I made the reference of uh, 8, 9, and 10, the first seven verses of Ephesians. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive in together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, the us here. Uh, it's clearly the church. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find out who this is addressed to. And again, I just want to point you to the love of God. So this gift of love was not taken from Christ. Paul says here in verse 20 that the Son of God gave himself for me. And this is in harmony with the Lord's own words as recorded in John 10, verses 17 through 18. He says, Therefore, my father loves me because I laid down my life. I laid down my life, he says. 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Friends, nobody takes anything from Jesus. They didn't take his life. He laid it down. And you cannot demand the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God, Paul says. What do I mean when I say demand? I mean you can't take. You can't accuse God of being unfair. That's not what grace is. All of this saving work is the gift of God's sovereign grace. This is why Paul concludes this thought the way he does. In verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Getting back to the specific example that we have here in our text, Paul is saying to Peter, by separating yourself from the Gentiles, you have who the Gentiles who you have once called your brothers in Christ, you are taking a stand with the Judaizers and not with Christ. Peter, you're nullifying the grace of God and you are denying the need for Christ's death upon the cross. Like I mentioned in the last episode, we need to take it easy on Peter because we can be just like him. But I want you to remember Matthew 16, 22, as I'm coming to the end here, this is where Peter expresses his disagreement that Christ should go to Jerusalem and suffer. Jesus has just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to suffer. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And our Lord's response was this, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, friends, I'm not making an excuse for Peter, but I would suggest that Peter had this kind of reaction because he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He was extremely misguided because he didn't see the whole picture. And I think that's what happens here in our text. The parallels are just too close to be a coincidence. I believe that once again, Peter is zealous for the things of God. He wants to obey the Lord, but he is misguided. You see, Jesus had to go to the, had to go to the cross because we are powerless to save ourselves. So there's two pillars of the gospel. Number one, the grace of God. Number two, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. These things go hand in hand. The grace of God and the death of Jesus it's so important for you to understand this because to the extent that you understand this will be the extent that you run from false gospels. You will run from legalism. And if you insist that you can save yourself, you're going to perish, friends. By your own efforts, you're going to show that it cannot be done. And you, if you're a Christian thinking that you can work for it, you are undermining the very foundation of Christianity. The death of Christ is a precious thing. Friends, don't try to work for it. Don't try to be religious. You can do those things. You can work and you can be religious, but it doesn't mean that you are reborn. Friends, with grace and with a grateful heart and with gratitude, 
take the free gift. Take the free gift. And with that, hope this has been encouraging to you. Hope that I gave you some things to think about. Remember the grace of God and the death of Jesus Christ. May you, people of God who are listening to this podcast, may you know that God our Father made you and guides your every step. Jesus Christ gave his life for you, and he is the one who brings new life. It is the Holy Spirit who keeps you in the Lord's presence and empowers you to serve. And may God Almighty continue to bless you and to move you to give him thanks. Amen. Some won't shine In case that you don't know